I'm Allison Sibula. And I'm Laura Hoffman. And you're listening to third episode of 13, 13 Years, Years Later. Later. I almost was like, what's the name of our podcast? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it may be a really short-lived podcast or it might just go on forever. Yeah. So this is the final day of our road trip. We are currently on the road, literally driving right now as we record um, on a stretch of I-10 between Houston to New Orleans. And the road here is pretty beat up. So um, we hope there's not a lot of noise, um, but there probably will be. So please be patient with our podcast and any road sound effects that you might hear like rumbling on the microphone. Like we apologize um, and we hope it's not too bad. And thank you for your patience. The reason we named our podcast 13 years later, uh, maybe you've listened to our first two episodes, so I'll just kind of go over it briefly. We did a road trip just like this 13 years ago to um, uh, North Carolina when I moved. I'm moving to Boston. Laura um, has luckily accompanied me, um, and we're reflecting on the last 13 years and our expectations versus what actually, what like life actually was like. Um, in our last podcast, we touched on some personal failures that for me, the one I touched on really still stings, which was moving to New York City and feeling like I really failed, um, having it be this childhood dream and then um, having to leave and just feel like that that really sucked. And, um, and in my last podcast, I talked about how I have always loved international things since I was little and, and the world of writing and art and how I attempted to achieve that um, going to Europe and how it failed and um, how it kind of set me on this new path to college and um, we'll be talking more in this episode about about failure Again. <laughs> that's our big theme and um, we'll each share another another story about a big fail in our lives and insights that we got and you know, some attempt at redemption, uh, 13 years later. Hi, this is Laura. My segment is sort of a continuation of yesterday's segment where I left you was my failed attempt to live forever in Europe and how it really got me started on this path towards college. My original idea was to go to college and then live overseas forever somewhere and that didn't quite happen either. I ended up doing some other things that were also on my list for this life, which was get married and have kids. I went to grad school. Um, that was also covered in episode one. And so all of that is so good. Um, but there is something from long ago that just still sort of like itches and calls it, it to haunts me, you haunts me that's kind of like a negative <laughs> it's a happy haunt <laughs> it's that I always wanted to live this bohemian sort of traveling lifestyle um, I always wanted to be more successful with my creativity I have like really always wanted to be a writer and like trust me everyone I know it's like well if you want to just do it okay I get it um I hope that I can be one of those people that you read about that sort of makes it all happen in the second half of life. I've been thinking a lot because this is the last year before I am 40. And that feels like not quite the middle of my life, but somewhere close to the middle. And, you know, when you have kids, things get more difficult and you have less um, time and energy and resources. 
And that's one of the things that Allison and I were talking about yesterday is like, you can have these dreams and these desires and these passions, but you need time to do them. You need the energy to do them and you need the resources. And sometimes resources is money or investors or connections. And this is a moment where I just want to acknowledge quickly my attempts to learn a lot more about white privilege. And I know that even though I came from a poor family and even though I came from um, a family where there was like, you know, addiction and alcoholism and sort of that smattering of things that a lot of families get and that I was the first person in my family to go to college and I, I feel like I sort of like rose up and improved on life. I still enjoyed privileges of being white. I've been learning a lot about that. Mm, thanks for saying that. Yeah. So within that, I just want to say that this is definitely not um, a first world problem bitch fest at all. <laughs> it, it's just this is my experience that I wanted to share. And um, like to add, thank you so much for saying that. That was really lovely because we, we were so concerned about about that in sharing our failures. Like we know we have it good. Um, but I, but also like we can have our struggles too. And our we just wanted to be vulnerable on this podcast in in an effort to like maybe safe port other people's struggles. Um, that's it. For example, this morning before we headed out of Houston, we stopped this market that Allison had found called Central Market. And it was like sort of like Whole Foods, just like beautifully laid out and just food from everywhere, which if you listen to episode two, you know that I'm just a sucker for food from anywhere. It's an organic grocery store in Texas. And I just like loved going through and picking things. And I thought, look at all of us here shopping. We are so lucky that we can be like, you know what? I feel like having cherries from Hood River. Um, I feel like having a strawberry goat cheese, white balsamic vinegar muffin. It's like, (laughs) I, I acknowledge and I feel immense gratitude and I, I see the privilege that we have. Mm, Thanks. So moving on, um, going to Marfa, Texas, just, it connected with my soul. That was yesterday. Being in this quirky artistic community just spoke to these parts of me that just do not get to be expressed all the time. Um, I always strive to have outlets for my creativity. It just doesn't always happen. So um, this is kind of leading me towards talking a little bit about dreams that are deferred and do you chase them? Do you suppress them? If you suppress them, what happens? If you chase them and you fail, what happens? And um, I have done many creative projects that completely failed. I would have been overjoyed had some of them worked out. One of the big things that was a project that I began like 15 years ago and I kept kind of working on it, working on it, working on it was um, this endeavor called Birthday Bandits. And it's where... A child whose birthday would be starting in a week would get one letter a day with a little goodie from like these magical characters from a faraway land um, in an effort to solve a mystery of what happened to their birthday present. And so on the seventh day, they would have been led through this story told in letters and end up finding their present. Okay, and I need to add is that Laura's actually a creative genius, which she would never (laughs) say. These stories were so freaking fun, like such good little mysteries for kids. The illustrations were gorgeous. Like the little props that she would give, like you tried it out. Kids loved it. It, I loved it. it. It just was, it was such a good product. Yeah. Kids loved it. I mean, I got really good feedback. I think I just don't have like the complete thing of like 
investing a bunch of money or the marketing or whatever. Like I just don't have all the things, um, to, to scale up. Yeah. Like I let, to make it a real pro, like a product you could buy on the shelf. I'm like the creative one, the, I know how to make this cool and fun one, but to actually like launch and make it like a business reality. I don't have that. Um, I was doing things like, you know, selling the kids, uh, clothes and like working on the side, doing my writing and my career counseling. And like, I sold like this beautiful woven baby wrap carrier, like all to like fund the supplies. And like, I was like really just reaching with my meager resources, which, you know, you need time, energy and resources, um, staying up till two in the morning, like just to try to make it happen. And you know, it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that like, it'll never happen or that nothing creative I do will happen. I've had some wins over the years where some of my writing, my, you know, my writing products have made it out there. She wrote a children's book that got published by a shoe company. So cool. The way you say it, it does sound cool. It's Um, amazing. Yeah. So I've had some few wins, but it's not like now you are an established writer or artist. Um, so this is actually a story of ongoing failures because like I said, I, I've got these kids. I failed a bit. I'm not really out there as an established artist. I'm almost 40. I hope I live a long life. Um, we live mostly on one and a quarter incomes, right? There's a lot of financial responsibilities. We live in San Diego. It's very expensive. Um, I think we live below our means, which is always my advice, like live below your means. Don't get caught up in the two income trap where two people work and you spend all that money to, um, up, like keep up this lifestyle. Solid advice. Yeah. Um, we want to be able to retire at some point. So it's like, you have to save, you got to look out for like scary health issues that could pop up. Like, uh, you know, I just think life is expensive these days. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit about, what the hell am I going to do to make sure come hell or high water that I have redemption, redemption 13 years from now, looking back, did I just forget about it? And instead of pursuing these artistic parts of me and these international flair parts of me, did I just like suppress that and instead fill it with like food or binge watching TV or like, you know, shopping. Uh, No, that's not really my style. That's not you. But I know people do that (laughs) or they blame and say, well, I would have, but I gave everything I had to my three children. Well then that's just being a martyr and that's nobody's fault, but your own. Um, I'm conscientious of all those things. And I want my kids to know that they were my everything. And my husband was also my everything. And my friends were my everything. And myself and my own relationship with my creativity also were my everything. Um, and this goes without saying for you, but any listener who listens, like you cannot have it all when (laughs) they say, Oh, women everywhere, have your career, have your kids, do your yoga, be healthy, look young, achieve your dreams. Um, it's a marketing scam. No, but you can have more of it all. If your husband helps you with the laundry, I just want to throw that in there. That's true. That's true. I mean, and for example, my husband is totally taking care of house and home and funding this because I technically haven't started working yet. So (laughs) I, yeah, this is possible because of that. So totally. Thank you. So anyway, um, the truth is that there's not really a balance as I'm doing more now with work, the home will suffer. If I'm doing more with the kids, maybe the bank account will suffer. If I 
endeavor to work on some creative projects, then maybe the kids and the home will suffer and the finances if it costs, costs me money. So these are choices I'll have to make. Um, but I like, you know, you always hear about those writers, like, um, you had mentioned earlier, JK Rowling. And then I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote, um, the kite kite runner. He was like a, a medical doctor who would like, like stay up all night writing that book in addition mm-hmm. to being a full-time doctor, you know, and you're just like, Oh my God, I, I have no willpower. <laughs> like, I just want to go to bed. But you did that. You- I did do that. I stayed up till 2am regularly um, and beyond while I had kids. And even before this specific creative endeavor, when I had two of my young children, the, the younger was like less than a year old. And I was staying up for several months in a row until 2 a.m. to study for my um, national board certification for counseling, which is like in addition to the master's. So I have definitely been able to put in that work for you sure. You have what it takes. Um, maybe it's just a matter of statistics. You know, a lot of people do receive many, 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 many rejections. There's plenty of famous stories and books written about rejections and then suddenly you become famous. I think my goal is not to have notoriety. I just want to have like an actual legit established product out there that is like real, like legit real, even if it's not what and define hugely popular. Like what's real for you? Like what would be a success for you? Um, if, if a hundred percent success rate is like your Oprah, 0% success rate is like only you and your grandma know about it. Then I would, <laughs> I would love, I would love like 20 to 30% success. That's great. Okay. I get it's it. It's really small. <laughs> If a, if I get a little cash flow, great. If it leads to like more of me getting to do more creative things, great. Um, cool. If I can do that internationally, even more amazing. So, okay, recently I came out to my husband. Uh-huh. I came out to my husband. This is really, I was super nervous. Yes, I understand. As an expatriate. Okay. I just saw last night an article which I'm going to read. I'm not sure which publication if it was the guardian i really want to go back and read it because i always try to be really aware about some of these words used i've always known expatriates to be people who decided that they would rather live somewhere else than, than the states either temporarily or permanently and just really live fully in a different country and i saw an article saying that everybody else is called immigrants i but saw if, that one too you did and, and if american leaves they're called expats but I was like, wait, I'm not sure. I didn't know. Like, I thought expats were people from America that went to another country. But I think it's I saying, thought, like, an immigrant is more derogatory somehow. Maybe, I think it has to do with privilege and money. Like, if you kind of have more money, you're an expat. But maybe if you're if you're fleeing somewhere from, exactly. for economic reasons. Yeah. I thought, yeah, immigrant seems like you're fleeing because the place where you were there was like instability of some sort, but I actually, in my mind, I have not ever researched this, but in my mind, I kind of thought that expat was like an American slang. Okay, we're slang. going over some bumps. Okay. Sorry. I thought expat was an American slang and that each country would perhaps have in their own dialect a slang for when they leave their country, but that I didn't know it if it was in a specific language. Do you see uh, what I'm saying? Yeah. We may have to solve this another episode. Yes. It is totally a different episode. Um, but I came out to my husband that I'm actually an expat and it's interesting because he came from Argentina and he will be very unlikely to go back. As far as I know, he's not planning to, um, he didn't like, like economic and political climate and came to the States and he's now a citizen. When you say you came out of, basically you're saying like, you told him like, I want to live in another country. 
Yes, but I had never told him how much I felt this because it was kind of like, well, we're going to school. He kind of came from Argentina. I don't want to now pressure him to move again because it was a big success for him just to come here and acclimate and and find a career here and start a family and become a citizen. So I I never wanted to like pressure him in all these years mm-hmm. to be like time's a ticking because I actually would like to live somewhere else. Got it. And and now that we got to this place where we're kind of stable, we're done having kids. I was like, you know what? This is really important to me, and I don't know how to say this, but I want to go live in a different country like for a long time, like for two or three years. Cool. He actually took it well. He said, I will start looking for jobs elsewhere because what? the truth is... He just took it in stride. He, he did. He. We had always talked about how we loved the idea of living other places, and we totally wouldn't mind if the opportunity arose. And there may have been opportunities within the places that he had worked before, mm-hmm. but we were kind of in the midst of having kids, and you have to make sure you're paid well enough. And You guys have great careers for living abroad, though, because like you can always get a job for a university where they need English-speaking career counselors Mm -hmm. that's such a I mean I one of my former bosses at Berkeley got a job for Central European University in Hungary Mm -hmm. where they just needed an English-speaking communications director Mm -hmm. boom got to live abroad for many years Mm -hmm. I could totally see you doing that and then Andres as a he's he's an engineer yeah so I think there's just a lot of logistics involved and with the three kids we don't want to uproot them for the wrong reasons and then it's here's the thing at that point it's not just me failing it's me like causing failure for the whole family. Do you see the difference? Yes. However, I, I do feel that like once you're in a committed partnership, it's, it softens the blow. It's like failing together is way better than failing alone. Yet we have a huge responsibility to make sure the, the kids are all right, so to speak. They're good. So yeah, that. This is not like the most succinct of stories. It's just to let you know that the failures are still in progress. Um, (laughs) We're exploring living and working abroad um, before we get too old to do so. And I, and I say that meaning as the kids get older, it's going to get harder yeah, because they're going to want to stay at the same yes, like, pl- yeah, school. As we get older, there is definitely age discrimination in careers. So we don't want that to be a factor. And um, also not to say that where we live, we live in San Diego. It's a beautiful place. It's, you know, it's, again, this is my journey. This is kind of what I'm going for. So I'm looking forward to continuing to feed those parts of myself to write, to live abroad, um, we're, we're looking into options. And basically kind of saying, like, the failure would be complacency. And what you, and it's easy to get into the routine. And you have a nice routine. And you already feel lucky to live where you live and have the life you have. Yeah, like, but to some extent, we've arrived. Yes. Dot, dot, dot. But there's more. There's You want to continue to stay excited about your life. And so... Um, even though you're comfortable, it's like, let me, let me see if I can make even more of my dreams happen before, you know, you're on your deathbed because you don't want to be on your deathbed and be like, I, but I wish I had, but I, those are the things yeah, that are worth failing for. Totally. All right. This is Allison. And, um, my, my story is all about how I accumulated $14,000 in credit card debt while I was living in New York city between 2014 and 
well, 2013 and 2015 and, um, and how I paid it off. And, um, we, I actually, we recorded my whole story while we were on I-10, um, the major highway in Louisiana, driving through Louisiana and the roads were so insanely bad. We had to stop the recording like three times to be like, uh, let's stop and start again. And so, uh, hopefully I'm going to tell this story better and faster, um, this time around. Yeah. Everything you've heard, we've actually done like probably five times (laughs) before you heard it. version we hope but again again if it's boring please tell us that's our one goal try not to be boring okay here's the rundown if um listen to my last episode to hear all about how I moved to New York and why that was a big failure for me and um I I took a nonprofit job there um for nuns for and they paid me fifty thousand dollars which of annual salary which I seemed like a high number in my 28 year old brain but if I would have just asked someone, is that enough for New York? Or like looked at a sample New York budget, they w- it would have been very clear. Like it's not enough. Um, one of my friends gave me, one of my New York friends years later gave me like a sample budget um, for New York City. And just having like a basic life of like rent, savings, um, for me like paying off my student loans, um, eat- eating food, just eating food. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe going out of town a couple times a year really for New York, um, cost of living just for like the, like a, like a simple standard, normal life, nothing too extravagant. The minimum you really need to make in New York to be, to have that is 115,000 annual salary. Okay. And that's not counting. Like if you need dental work or you get ill none of that, or like none of that retirement or emergency savings. I mean, that was like the bare minimum that I could come up with and still save like a tiny amount. Mm, it, okay. Really. Um, like if, if I were to make, if I were to take a salary that was less, like more like 80 or 90,000, it'd be like, I'd have to sacrifice something big, like no savings or like put my loans on forbearance or something mm-hmm. like that. And, and it sounds ridiculous, but every city has its own costs and costs of living. What are the food prices? What's the rent price? How much is transportation? And New York just happens to be the freaking highest. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty notorious for that. It is. And, I, and yet people go in droves to try their luck. That's why this is my failure story of, you know, a, a two, two, it's like part two. Of yeah, it New is. York fail it is because, kind of, it's like the aftermath. Mm-hmm, it is. Um, Okay, so really quickly, this is like a rundown, a summary of how I got the debt. And the thing is, is that I got there, I did have savings. Um, however, it was really expensive to get a place. I ended up getting renting a two-bedroom apartment on the on like Midtown East um, with three other people, and um, we turned a two-bedroom into a four-bedroom. This is a thing in New York where you hire these kind of illegal. Um, wall people, they come and put a wall up or like two walls up in your place and turn it into, turn your living room basically into two bedrooms. Wow. So there were two full regular bedrooms and then we turned the living room into two bedrooms. I knew people did that with little partitions. I didn't know there were like people you could hire. Oh my God. For temporary and walls. And it's shady because you're not supposed to do it. And then before you leave, they also come and take them down. Yep. And it's super expensive because you have to pay all up front for them to also take them down when you leave. And it's so silly too, because the next people will totally put the walls back up again, but you cannot move out and not take the walls down. Wow. It's really a weird thing. Like the, when we had it done, they could totally tell where the old walls used to be. And they're like, cool, we're just going to put them back up. And the landlords are not supposed to know about this. Oh, it's, it's totally against the rules. Super against the rules. Um, 
And so, um, like you, we had to pay a broker's fee. So that's like where in New York, I didn't know about this before moving out there, but you have to pay someone a full month of rent just to rent an apartment. It's a one-time fee when you move in. There's no way around it. Some people do find a way around it. I never did. Um, and so it was very expensive to move into a, a like a permanent place. Um, and that took like all of my savings and then some. And so it kind of became this thing where I, I like fell behind a little bit and I was like, oh, I'll just put a little bit on my credit card to make sure I have enough for like living expenses. Um, and then... And then added on top of that, um, I, I, there was a month of time where I didn't have a job. So that was like a month of living expenses that I had to, to not have a paycheck. That was super, super hard. Um, luckily I did find another job pretty quickly, but because I was working freelance, the paychecks weren't regular. Um, and so that was so stressful. And I was like, I was always catching up on my bills Mm -hmm. and it just snowballed. It was like so much stress. And I was also in my late twenties and I didn't have financial literacy. I didn't know, I didn't really know how to manage my finances. And I was kind of a spaz. Like I just, I didn't, I wouldn't plan and I would emotionally react all the time. So for example, um, that winter of 2014 was so cold in New York. They actually had to invent a new term, a new weather term for how cold it was. Mm-hmm. It was called a polar vortex. Oh, wow. I want to look that up. I've never, I've never heard of that. But and, I mean, I can conjure it up. Polar it was so, vortex. It was so cold. And I just freaked out. And I was like, if I have to stay here one more minute, I'm going to die. And so I booked, I found, I did find a cheap flight to Miami and I flew to Miami just by myself for, um, a long weekend. And I, um, you know, it ended up just adding up. It was like, you know, a couple hundred dollars or many hundred dollar trip that I put on a credit card um, because I felt like I needed it. Like I, I have to. And it was almost like treat yourself like gone wrong. You know, that whole, <laughs> remember the whole treat yourself movement? Treat yourself <laughs> it's like, gone do, wrong. Do not treat yourself like, under <laughs> any circumstances. Don't treat yourself. Wow. Budget your money, put it in savings. No wow. treats. And so um, these little treats over time, it was also like the, the insecurity of living in New York where I'd be like, oh my gosh, all my friends are wearing new clothes. Um, I need to buy, I need to fit in. I need to go buy some new clothes. And then, so that'd be like 500 bucks just for a few basics. Plus, plus like all the seasons, like it really was like every time I turned around, I needed more like new, a new wardrobe, like legitimately, you know, very hot in the summer, very cold in the winter, moving there from California. So it just really snowballed and I don't mean this in like a condescending way, but like, did you imagine that it was somehow going to turn around at some point or, um, where did you see it going or were you just in survival mode? And that's, and that's the downfall. So you bring up such a good point because, um, I think I did imagine myself finally getting a high paying job where I was going to make like 80 or 90,000 mm-hmm. that, that really would have worked for my, you know, for my, um, the, the 115,000 number was like, if you kind of want to live by yourself or maybe you have one roommate. Mm-hmm. And I really was living on a pretty good, like living with three other people at all times. Like I could keep my expenses like pretty down. I never went out for dinner. I never went out for drinks. If I met up with people who were drinking, I just didn't order a drink because mm-hmm. they're like literally like 16 to $20. If you want to go have a drink that adds up. If mm-hmm. you have more than one drink, like <laughs> I just, it's so pricey. If you want to, if you forget to pack your lunch and you just want to go grab something, we're talking like $14 for a sandwich, you know, you were just completely unprepared for the reality. 
That was the reality. Yeah. That was the reality. Like, like, um, and you know, you have a smaller kitchen, you're sharing these spaces. You can't always pack your lunch. You not, you don't have a full kitchen. I did not budget for the lifestyle. I was not making enough money to live even a basic life there. And, Mm -hmm. and, and I was like running on empty, just like constantly trying to catch up, trying like, can I like invoicing my employer, like getting that paycheck, paying the bills pretty soon that, which if you listen to the last episode, um, it was a, an early stage startup. That job ended, um, quickly after six months, got another contract also, um, not, not super, um, regular paycheck intervals. Um, just always feeling stressed about money. Um, let's see what, what's, what do I need to, where do I need to go? Well, one of the things I'm thinking is like it, it's like, it's painful hearing the story because this was one of your dreams. This was one of your Mm. things that you had longed to do for so long and you gave it this chance. And it was like, so painful. It really, it really was so painful, but, um, and maybe this is part of the redemption is that it was like kind of tearing down some facades. Oh, it totally goes along (laughs) with these fake, these fake walls that were built in your rental. It's like they're, (laughs) they're shoddy partitions. Yeah. Some walls came down to... I don't know for me to come into adulthood and maybe be like, I need to figure out my finances. Um, I, I mentioned in the first episode that the hardest, the first hardest day of my life, the most, the hardest day was telling my parents that I had a drug problem when I was 19. The second hardest day of my life was telling my parents that I had $14,000 in credit card debt. Um, that was, that happened when I was like 30, 31, somewhere in there. And, um, Oh my gosh, my parents would have been like, and what do you want us to do about it? <laughs> I felt so much shame because I felt like I, sh- I should have been smarter than this. I, c- I could almost cry right. I could almost cry right now Aww. because I, sh- I felt smarter than that. It-, it felt like such, I felt so irresponsible still to this day. How did I let this happen? How did I let it build? And the thing was, is that I didn't want to look at it. I felt so embarrassed and shamed. I would just not pay attention. I would just pay the minimum and just, I'll deal with it later. I'll deal with it later. And pretty soon I was working with an amazing life coach at the time, um, who I'm so grateful for because I was like, I don't know how much I have. And he was like, you need to look at it. And I didn't want to. And luckily, um, his name is Emmerich. Thank you so much for your wonderful coaching. Help me actually own my finances for the first time. And like, mm-hmm. just look at the balance, total it up, deal with it. And he helped coach me through that, like admitting the shame I was feeling to my parents. And like, you just need to have this conversation. Um, which I realized like I didn't have to tell them, but, it, but, um, I needed their help. And that's part of my story, you mm-hmm. know? And I want to acknowledge that the privilege that I have in my life of having parents who can help because there are so many people who don't have that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I feel so privileged and lucky, um, to have had that. So, um, just want to throw that out there. Um, do you think, I'm curious if, if you knew that your parents couldn't help you or somebody in your family or anybody, if you knew that there was no safety net, there was no help. Do you think you might've made the same mistakes Um, like, did you meet anybody who you knew who didn't have a safety net, who still had like a lot of debt? Everyone's story is so, is so unique. Like I know people who didn't have a safety net, um, 
and felt very um, broken their whole lives and and struggled. I've met people who didn't have a safety net and like found a way to become like an independent salesman and like independently wealthy and like make a million dollars. I've met um, people who had a safety net and and got um, credit card debt. People who have a safety net and have great savings accounts. It's like we all have our own like finance story and we all need to own it. And there's no right amount of money that makes you whole. Mm-hmm. There's, it's not like if you have savings, you're worthy. And if you don't, you're not worthy. It's not that. So it could go either way and it could have gone either way for you. Who knows? Absolutely. It's unfortunate that my journey caused me so much pain and suffering, but um, it's my it's my story. Mm-hmm. Um I want to touch on um, how I paid it off, which was that um, I had the luxury of moving in with my dad, um, at which I never thought I would do, and and was like I don't know could could have been shameful, but at this point I'm like you know what I'm owning it I don't care, so moved in with my dad at age 32 last year this year this year, and um, just started throwing I got a, a job at Cal Poly and I just started throwing paycheck like whole paychecks at my credit card debt. Um, and then I want to be honest that my, um, my dad was able to offer me, um, a loan to cover some of it, which, um, I guess I want to mention like just full transparency, you know, that I did have parents that could help me in that way. But also, you know, if you're listening and you do have resources like that, like family members who can help, don't be afraid or ashamed, like too scared to ask them for help. Because oftentimes you may have a family member or a close friend who's in a position to help and they'd be, you know, more than happy to help you in that way to help you alleviate some stress. Yeah. Just pay it forward. Yeah. Don't do it too many times in a row. Oh, totally. (laughs) I mean, one time you, you lent me some money. Do you remember that? Way back in the day. I do not it was like remember. a couple hundred bucks. I was what? so grateful. It was. I cannot remember that. Okay. <laughs> um, and um, so um, so basically, it was um, it it was in order to pay it off, I had to declare a state of emergency, which is a term I got from Mr. Money Mustache. Oh, I love that blog. You you were the one that turned me on to that blog. He's um he's like Mr. Frugal. Um, it's a great blog. I highly recommend reading it. He's all about just saving as much money as possible and living a simple life of connection with other humans, like deep meaning. Yes. Like he doesn't use the air conditioning in his car and he like bikes everywhere. Yeah. He mindfully only had one child. Oh yeah. Because of finances. He really (laughs) did. That's, that's on there. He's great. Um, and so he says, if you're in credit card debt, you do not get to eat out. You do not get to go to concerts like you like you're you need to pay that off. And so I um, I use that kind of mentality of like I'm in a state of emergency. I don't get to do fun things. I didn't go to concerts. You know, I didn't go. I stopped going to yoga because, you know, what yoga is like like in San Diego at Core Power. It's one hundred and forty four dollars a month. I know I was talking about, oh, now that I'm going to go back to work, maybe I can just pay for yoga for myself. It's a lot. I mean, if I'm you still ha- on the fence. Okay. Yeah. So it's stuff like that of like, if you need to pay off your credit card debt, like, I'm sorry, you got to do yoga at home. Like you got to find those free videos on YouTube mm-hmm. because that's a huge expense where you could be throwing that at your credit card balance. Um, I want to also mention how much credit card balances, um, snowball. You, oh. let's see, you have that 15% annual percentage rate, but y- um, that gets added every month. So, you know, $75 for, um, let's say your, um, $3,000 balance, 
then that gets added and then you're paying interest on your interest the next month. So it's actually really easy. You do a $500 trip there, a, a, you know, $300 worth of clothing here. And then that interest starts adding up and pretty soon you have this huge balance. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how it can happen to anyone. And it does happen to anyone. And that's why it's so important for me to, to do this episode about this is that I, in talking to a lot of people, I've realized how many people out there have actually have credit card debt. In fact, I think the average that I looked up was that the average American has $5,000 in credit card debt. Yeah, I, I hear all about that. So um, so if you're listening, you, you may have some yourself. Um, you, t you can totally you can totally tackle it. You just have to reduce your expenses to like zero and just start throwing money at it and just um, like learning how to um, control your impulses. Um, to where if you're feeling an emotion that's coming up, you need to be able to acknowledge it and say, I'm feeling restless. I'm feeling disappointed. I'm feeling um, scared. I'm feeling nervous and not go buy an outfit, go, not go buy a trip, not go buy a drink to um, help with help with that uncomfortable emotion and instead just sit with it and go, okay, but I'm, I have a budget and I'm sticking with it and I'm not, I'm not going to spend the money. Or be the one to say in a social setting, you know, I'm, I'm on a budget. Yes. And I'm like one of the only moms that I know in the expensive world of like paying for kids at, um, kids activities or going on fancy vacations. Like I'm always the one to be like, we're on a budget, you know, we're on one income. It's so I'm not good. even, I'm not even afraid to say it. It's like, well, and so you may bring up such a good point, which is that so many people, um, and then we're going to wrap this up. So many people are afraid to talk about their finances. And so I'm hoping that by, um, just you know, talking about mine here on this episode that those of you listening, like learn how to talk about money just, just by starting. It's going to feel uncomfortable at first to say, well, I'm on a budget and I can't do that. I, you know, and don't say like I'm broke or I can't afford it. Just say like, it's, it's a not, budget. It's not in my budget. I always tell the kids, I say, we have money, but we choose not to spend it that way. That's so good. Or in those ways. That's so or good. Or we talk about the choices. Like we can't have this and this and this and this. We need to pick this. Or I, I have been very forthright with him about the choice that I have made. I have stayed home with you. And because of that, I have not earned as much money. Mm. It's you're teaching your kids slowly. Yeah, slowly. Um, and you also do a good job of teaching your kids how to recognize their emotions when they come up. Oh, thanks. I do try. Um, and Andres is really good with also talking about money. He's really good about that stuff. Cause if you can teach your kids how to deal with their emotions as they arise, you're going to end up a lot with, you know, an adult, um, who, who knows how, who knows how to control impulses. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> that's the goal. Okay. That's, that's it. Hey everyone. It's Laura. These are our little impressions to end our episode three. We actually, yesterday were in San Antonio. I have never Texas. been there. Texas. I have never been there before. And it was so great. We went and we saw the Alamo. And I'm going to just admit complete ignorance historically about the Alamo. It's like one of those things where you learn about it throughout school and then you just promptly forget it. I don't know a lot of Texans. I just, you know, but I really loved going on the river rock, river walk and checking out the Alamo and reading as many signs as I could. I love museums. I almost went into museum studies. It shouldn't be a shocker. My undergrad was anthropology, so they kind of like are entwined. 
and without the kids there, I could actually enjoy reading you signs. You could actually read the signs. I loved reading the signs. We were still like on a pretty tight itinerary, so I, I had to rush through some of the signs. And like, this is one of my favorite things. Growing up, my dad loved Phil Collins, and therefore I love, I'm going to use present tense, like I love Phil Collins still. It's true. And I looked up just cool factoids about the Alamo so I could like enrich my experience. And Phil Collins had like over a million dollars worth of real artifacts that he had collected over the years from the history of the Alamo. He was a huge fan. It turns out that when he was younger, he watched Disney's The Adventures of Davy Crockett and became obsessed with the Alamo and became this amazing collector. And he then donated it only in 2014 to the Alamo. They're making a whole museum about it next to the Alamo, hundreds of pieces. And he was actually, we we just barely just missed, missed him. We just missed him. He was there June 18th to dedicate seven bronze sculptures um, that he donated to the Alamo that show the Alamo um, as, a, as a bronze relief of what it looked like at different points in time. So I'm like all about the Alamo right now and especially the Alamo as it relates to Phil Collins. Great. This is Allison. Um, in case you literally know nothing about history, the Alamo is like an old fort from early settlers um, in American history. Um, it seems like settlers were in the San Antonio part of Texas starting as early as the early 1700s, which blows my mind. And then the there was like a battle of the Alamo that happened in the 1830s. Your recall always impresses me so much. <laughs> um, so it and um, and so that's kind of some context. It's like an old adobe building that went through a lot of phases like as a church and as a fort um as like a mission as so. a church fort <laughs> <laughs> yeah because we were amazed we came in and there was two rooms and it was like oh these were places for prayer and worship and then they turned into artillery storage we were yeah. like ooh, the old chapel cannon room the irony <laughs> um but uh, it was my first time visiting San Antonio, Texas, and they have a really beautiful uh, downtown with the river that goes through downtown. And then you walk along this river and it feels like Disneyland uh, because... I could not shake that feeling. I don't... Why does it feel like Disneyland? Because when you go to Disneyland, there's all these rides where you get in and you're like in a little moat and <laughs> um, there's cool stuff to look at. And that's how the river walk is, except you're just walking along although you you can actually get in a boat and do it Um, it was like so quaint and charming like we couldn't quite believe it was real yeah it it really charming and quaint are are great words so um those are our impressions from the road thank you so much to listening to our um for listening to our third episode